Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for the first three weeks of Advent this year, we're going to read from the book of Isaiah together. Christians uh, all over the world have, for a very, very long time now, opened the book of Isaiah during Advent. And uh, we have done that because of all of the promises that God makes in it about what it will look like and what it will be like when he comes. Some of the uh, most enduring images from Scripture come from the passages that we're going to be looking at together. We've already uh, read and heard and sung some of these images this morning. Swords beaten into plowshares and wolves and lambs dwelling together. And sorrow and sighing fleeing away in the desert blooming like a flower. These, uh, these metaphors point to the very real, very tangible flesh and blood reversals and restorations that will happen when God comes. These are things that will make a weary world rejoice, as the old carol says, and things that I hope will make us rejoice too. So we'll start this morning uh, reading together from Isaiah 2. I'll read verses 1 through 5, and you can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship if you'd like. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we join uh, with the ancient uh, witness of your church, all those saints that have gone before us, and ask that you would uh, shed light on this word that we've read and heard together that you would shed light on it as we talk about it and think about it together, that you would come as the light to us. That that light would shine uh, on us in whatever places we find ourselves, whatever conditions we find ourselves in, those of us who have faith and those of us who don't, those of us who aren't exactly sure. Father, meet us with the light of Jesus and change us by his grace, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, in the summer uh, before I started seminary, I took a three-week Greek review course. Uh, not modern Greek, but the, the ancient Greek that the New Testament was written in. I had taken a year of it as an undergraduate, but I wanted to, uh, you know, as the, as the course promised, I wanted to review it before I started classes again. And I remember thinking that it was going to be kind of fun, like uh, maybe getting to visit with an old friend 
but it was without question the most difficult and the most miserable class I have ever taken in my life. Uh, I guess I was rustier than I thought I was, and the professor made it clear from minute one of day one that we were going to take the train to the very last stop every single day, both in class and by way of homework, and that class completely consumed me every waking minute. And about, after about a week and a half of that class, none of us in the class had gotten any grades back. I had no idea how I was doing, and I was pretty sure that I was doing horribly. So I decided that I was going to talk to the professor and ask him about this stuff. He, he is still an emeritus professor at my seminary. He's still maybe around. So I'll just say this. Uh, he did not carry himself much like someone who wanted to be anybody's pal. So <clears throat> I caught up with him on a break, and when I did, I guess I hadn't realized how much anxiety I was carrying around inside my body, because when I started to talk with him, uh, I got really flustered and shaky and red and was kind of a mess. And I remember just wanting him to, to level with me. I remember him just wanting to say if I was failing and what can I do if I'm failing. But when I stopped speaking, his face totally changed in front of me. And he looked at me with this great disarming kindness. And he said, this is hard, but we're all going to get through it. And that's all he said. <laughs> that was all he said in church. I have to tell you, it was enough. I didn't see how it could be true, but I believed that it was true. And it was enough. It was enough to brace me through the next week and a half and to, for me to keep working as hard as I could without being preoccupied with worry or anxiety. He told me that we would all get through it. It shall come to pass in the latter days, God says to his people. It will come to pass in the latter days. That's what God says through the prophet. Here's how we're all going to come through this. Here's the way that it's going to work out. This is what your future looks like. You know, I opened the paper uh, on Friday morning, and there were three news pieces and one opinion piece on the war in Ukraine. There was a, a piece on the flooding victims in Pakistan, now months after the flooding, still waiting for relief. There were details on both of the mass shootings in recent history. Pieces on the hit and runs and fatal crashes in our city. There was an article on the recent resurgence of zombie debt. It's a thing, you can look it up. And there is nothing special about the Black Friday edition of the Tribune, because that's how it is every day. And all of us, of course, have things that we're staring down that are not ever going to make the paper but that still affect us a great deal. Stuff with our health, stuff with our kids, stuff with a friendship that has blown up or is blowing up, stuff with an ex, stuff from our past that keeps coming up that we feel like we can never get rid of. And to you and to me and to a very weary world, God speaks with a clear voice and he inclines us towards hope. He says, we will get through this. It shall come to pass in the latter days. 
His is a deep resolve for this world. And it is a deep resolve for our good. So this is how it starts. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. I don't want to speed that past that part because that sets all of this in a really specific place and time. And to be honest, it was a mess. It was a wreck. It's about 700 B.C. and a nation called Assyria is carving up the known world. They were this fearful military juggernaut and everyone who tried to fight them got torn up. So the northern part of the country, which was known simply as Israel at the time, had made a pact with another nation to help them fight Assyria. And they were uh, hoping, they were begging the southern part of the kingdom, known as Judah, the place that Isaiah is speaking to, they were hoping that Judah would join them in this pact. But instead of joining that pact, Ahaz, the king of Judah at the time, decided to send a bribe to Assyria instead, a tribute to Assyria. And as the northern kingdom started to crumble and fall to the Assyrian threat, the king and the people of Judah were really, really, really hoping that bribe money was going to come through. And Isaiah comes onto the scene and says, fat chance. It's not It's not the problem that Judah had corny and naive military strategies. Those were just symptoms. They were symptoms of a people, and in particular, of an administration who had forgotten God. I mean, you should read Isaiah chapter 1 later this afternoon, but be ready for it, because it is a bruising body blow of an indictment that's read out for the whole creation to hear. The country was rife with injustice starting from the top. That's what the prophet says. Isaiah says, your princes are rebels. Your princes are companions of thieves. They run after bribes. Everybody runs after gifts. And in a situation like that, it is, of course, no surprise that anyone who fell on the wrong side of power, on the wrong side of the line of status, suffered the fatherless, the widows, the poor, the strangers, the sojourners. Life was miserable for them under this administration. And the religion of the people was filled with hypocrisy. God says, when you spread out your hands, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I'm not going to listen because your hands are full of blood. I mean, that's the nation in a nutshell. Brazen injustice, a faithless leadership in politics, and a hypocritical religion. So it's no surprise. It's no surprise at all that a people who have ordered themselves in that way, who have ordered their common life in that way, are in a heap of trouble and are relying on a bribe to get them through. But you know what is surprising? You know what's really surprising? Hearing this. In the latter days, it will come to pass that the house, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of mountains. That it will be lifted up above the hills and all nations will stream to it. That's surprising. That's what's surprising. On the heels of such a thoroughgoing indictment, God says, but here's how we're going to get through this. And the future that I have planned for you is better than anything any of you could ever dream on your best day. That's surprising. Mountains, of course, were important to ancient Near Eastern religious practice. They were 
They were considered the places where heaven and earth meet. You see this reflected in scripture all over the place when it refers to pagan shrines as high places. And here's the thing, the temple or the house of the Lord, as Isaiah refers to it here, it was built on more of a rise than a mount. (laughs) It was physically unimpressive. In fact, the Mount of Olives that was nearby was higher. It was nothing, none of those were anything really compared to the mountains that were in the north country. So this metaphor is both unmistakable and audacious. One day, this little rise, one day, this little teeny rise is going to be seen as the highest place on the planet. And the nations will flow to it. John Calvin, the the 16th century reformer, was pretty frank about the beginning of Isaiah 2. He said, this vision might be thought absurd. (laughs) I mean, it's not just the geography of it that didn't make any sense, but in chapter 1, this capital city has been declared morally and spiritually and politically bankrupt. Its destruction has been assured. And now we're hearing that somehow one day it's going to actually be the center of the world. What could possibly cause this kind of whiplash? And the answer is simple, church, because on that day, on that day God will be there. In all of his grace and in all of his remaking power. That's what all the pilgrims say as they stream to that place. They say in verse 3, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord that he can teach us his ways so that he will teach us how to walk in his paths. The people are coming to learn from the God who made them about how to live as he has created them to live. So yeah, this is audacious and it's surprising and it's even absurd as Calvin said it, but it's in the best way that anything could possibly ever be absurd. In the way that turns the values and the intentions and the expectations of a fallen world inside out with good news. I mean, this is the bottom line, church. This is what we have to see, that a people who are so hopelessly, thoroughly fallen and broken could be the seed of the world's best possibility. That a people so thoroughly broken and so thoroughly fallen and seemingly without hope would be the seat of the world's best possibility, the hope of the whole world. Not because they got their acts together, because they did not. Not because they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, because they did not. Not because they somehow woke up one morning with the resolve to turn the ship around because they did not. Only because God came to them with his gracious, healing, remaking power. Because God resolved their good and through their good, the good of the whole world. And he has never once, church, never once has he been shaken from that resolve. Because when God said, in your family, all of the families of the earth will be blessed, he meant it. He meant that promise, and he's been keeping that promise unbroken through people as fallen and as broken as me and you every minute ever since. Audacious, surprising, absurd, scandalous, you can call it whatever you want, but it's the good news, church. It's the good news that is made certain by the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus for all who follow him in faith, and it's the best thing 
that any of us are going to hear today. And it is the one thing needful for all of us. God can forgive people like us. And he can use us for the life of the world. And when people come to Zion and they meet God and they learn how to live, they're going to submit their destinies, they're going to submit their futures to his judgment. And the result will be peace that flows out over the whole earth. That's what Isaiah says in verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And the result of all of this learning will be that the making of war will become utterly and beautifully unnecessary. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Political and economic oppression ends. Nationalisms fall away. Divisive ideologies disappear. One day church, the headlines of the morning paper are going to look very different than they do today. And that is the truth. So how is it all going to happen? What is it, it going to look like when God comes? No one in Isaiah's day would have ever dreamed what it would look like. That a young girl of no status in a no-name town in the north would get visited by an angel. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. You're going to have a son, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And all of the great promises for the good of God's people and the good of the world, they begin to be kept at the advent of Jesus, and they will be fully kept at the second advent of Jesus in glory. These are the promises. These are the promises that are spoken to a people who are barely hanging on by the tips of their fingers, people living under a fully corrupt administration with religious leaders who are on the take, and injustice everywhere they turn their eyes, with their immediate prospects hanging on a foolish bribe to a bloodthirsty king. These are the promises. They have been promised that there will be a future better than anything they could ever dare to dream. But what does that mean for them now? Well, I'll tell you what it means for them now. It means that they have a way to live. It means that they have a way to live and to be in this world. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's verse 5. To be faithful is to walk in light of that future right now. Not in despair, not in hopelessness, not in cynicism or resignation. Not trying to shut out present not trying to shut out what's going on around us with distractions or addictions or diversions, but to live in a way that resembles as closely as we possibly can the life that God is ushering this world towards. That is exactly where we are too. You know, when my professor told me that we were all going to get through that class okay, I believed him, but not because I was confident in my own ability. I mean, for all I knew, I was failing. I believed him because he was the guy who was in charge. 
And so if he said it, I was going to bank on it, and I was just going to keep working as hard as I could. And in a world racked with war and hunger and injustice and poverty in a city that is rife with violence and insider deals in our own lives faced with uncertainty and disappointment and fear, we have these same promises. And with those promises, we have a way to live faithfully. God has told us that we will get through and his promise for our good and through our good, the world's good. And he is the crucified, risen, and ascended one. And he is the one who is in charge. So faithfulness for us looks like living in light of these promises that he has made to us, that we will get through. And church, that means for us putting away cynicism and despair and hopelessness and resignation. These are the anti-virtues of the Christian life. They are the opposite of what we have been made for and called to. And I know that these, these things are not easy to put away. Trust me, believe me, I know that they are not easy to put away. Some days they seem like the most realistic approaches to life that can feel brutal. But church, trust me, they are all twisted parodies of hope. And hope is the thing that we have been made for. And living in that hope means working actively as best we can towards that future that God has promised for the world and for us. And I'm telling you right now, the policies of his administration are justice and righteousness and peace and caring for the poor and the fatherless and the widow and the stranger and the sojourner. This means living lives, if, if you'll allow me to quote the Westminster Larger Catechism question 135. This means that we live lives of love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceableness, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, requiting good for evil, comforting and giving aid to the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. This is our way to live faithfully. We live as people who believe the promises of God. We live as people of real, genuine hope. And we live as people whose hope inclines us towards working into the future that God has promised for us. Let us walk in that light. Let me pray for us. Jesus, when, when you came, you said that you are the light of the world and that those who have you have the light of life. And we ask that you would help us to be a people in the midst of this weary and broken place, feeling weary and broken ourselves, that you would help us to believe, that you would help us to have the eye of faith and the strong hand of faith to cling to Jesus, to cling to you, the light of the world. Father, we ask that you uh, would help us to do this, that you would help us to believe so that we could in turn be a people who love this broken world in the way that we have been loved. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.